Well, a recent survey was commissioned by BC Hydro finds that despite thinking of themselves as the more energy conscious generation, baby boomers' annual electricity use is about double that of millennials. The annual bills of the boomers about $500 higher. And the reasons, while some of them might seem obvious, some of them might come as a bit of a surprise. So to talk more about this, uh, let's bring in Tanya Fish with BC Hydro. Tanya, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. Um, walk, run through some of the highlights, if you can, of uh, the boomers. Uh, the, I guess the obvious ones that stuck out for me uh, were uh, they tend to be more established. They live in bigger homes. That would make sense that they have bigger uh, energy bills. Uh, but what are some of the other, where are some of the other places that uh, boomers are, are using a lot more energy? Yeah, so we did find um, boomers' lifestyles and habits also contribute to their higher bills. We did find that they tend to watch more traditional television at home uh, using a traditional tele- TV and PVR um, versus a tablet or a laptop, which millennials tend to use more. So, for example, a TV and PVR that combined use about 200 kilowatt hours of electricity per year. That's based on eight, ho- eight hours a week of watching um, compared to a tablet, which uses just 1.3 kilowatt hours. So quite a significant savings, savings there. We also found that baby boomers tend to cook more at home, and they cook more of those meals using a traditional electric oven. Um, so electric ovens are not the most efficient way to cook just you know one or two meals. So we do encourage using smaller appliances such as a toaster oven or a crock pot. These are about 75% more efficient and can offer some great savings when it comes to cooking around the home. Is, that was one of the findings too that I, I realized. When you think about it, it makes sense. But uh, I've always thought that maybe a toaster oven, and maybe because it feels a bit like a throwback, I would always yeah. have thought that a toaster oven seems like it wouldn't be all that energy efficient. Yeah, it actually is just I mean, large, largely because it's size. Um, it, it's quite quite a lot more efficient. Um, slow cookers are a great option, um, as well as the new instant pot that we keep hearing a lot about. Um, very, very a lot more energy efficient than the, the standard electric oven. And, and it finds that uh, boomers tend to have a lot more electronics or appliances in their homes. Uh, it, did mm-hmm. it look at? Is it because in in cases there might be older appliances or appliances that aren't as energy efficient? Yeah, so we did ask um, some survey questions around what types of items baby boomers and millennials both have in their homes. So we did find baby boomers are 53% more likely to have a second fridge or a wine fridge in their home. So a fridge obviously is the most energy-consuming appliance in your home. Just thinking about it, obviously it runs 24-7, 365 days a year. So having two of those can obviously significantly add to your your electricity use. Uh, We also found they're more likely to have a large home entertainment system. So more than a quarter of of baby boomers responded that they have one of those systems. So think about that. You have a TV, you you have a speaker, surround sound. Uh, PBR as well, so that adds up significantly in, in those, those that usage as well. Other things like a pool and a hot tub, again, they're they're big energy sucks as well. And uh, when you looked at this, and you mentioned this, so cooking dinner at home, that boomers tend to cook dinner at home a lot more mm-hmm. um, than compared to millennials who go out more. Uh, would it factor in, and I guess, though, it, you're using more of your home energy and, and such if you're cooking at home. Uh, but even a millennial going out to dinner, it's still someone's using that energy to cook the meals. It's, it just happens to be the restaurant, not the millennial at home. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one thing we also thought a lot about is how, you know, millennials might be outsourcing their electricity because they're not spending as much time in the home. They're not using the electricity in the home. So that their actual electricity use doesn't actually show up on their bill. As you said, they're going to their local restaurant to have, have a meal instead, using their electricity, you know, going out to maybe to a movie more often and those sorts of things. So obviously that electricity use is being used somewhere, just not doesn't show up on their on their bill. 
Right, right. And uh, the size of the homes, and you touched on this as well. Obviously, if you have a 2,000-square-foot home, you're going to be using a lot more to heat it than a 500-square-foot condo. Absolutely, yeah. So home size, obviously, is a, it's a huge factor in this. So we did find that about 40% of baby boomers live in homes that are larger than 2,000 square feet, um, while about 40% of millennials live in homes that are about half that size. And millennials are also three times more likely to live in those you know, tiny homes under 500 square feet. So obviously, if you have a larger home, more lights, uh, you know, a larger heating system, all those things factor in. All right. And not to, I feel like we're kind of beating up on the baby boomers, but not to, <laughs> not to say that, that we're beating up on that. But, but it is a different, there's clearly a, a, a difference in lifestyle because of, of where people are in their life. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the big takeaway for this, um, there's often a disconnect between you know, how we perceive our electricity use and how what we're actually using. So it doesn't matter what, what generation you're in, there's always ways to reduce your consumption. So one of the best things we like to suggest is going on to our website. We have some great energy tracking tools. So you can go on there and actually look at your consumption, see how your daily habits and things you're doing around the home impact your usage. And then from there, you can look for ways to save. So simple things, the, one of the most cost-effective ways to increase your home's efficiency is uh, draft-proofing. So putting some draft-proofing around the windows and doors is a great way to improve your, improve your home's efficiency and cut back on the amount of um, electricity your home heating system uses um, to you know, keep, your, keep feeling warm in the, in the winter months. I wonder too, did it look at, so when we're talking about heating as well, uh, I would imagine with just because of the difference in the homes, the, there would be boomers uh, where a lot of homes have furnaces as opposed to baseboard heating uh, in, in smaller homes. Yeah, we tend to see more baseboard heat, heating um, in you know, apartments and condos, especially in Vancouver, I know on the Vancouver Island as well. Um, so that obviously is a factor. We just you know, look at electricity use from our perspective. Um, so that doesn't include the, the natural gas, but we so there, with the home heating, there's obviously lots of ways to save um, using baseboards more efficiently. So if you have baseboard heat, heaters on in a room, you know, close that door to make sure the, the heat is staying in that room. Turn them down or off when you leave for the day. Um, keeping them running all day is going to add a lot to your electricity use and 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 your monthly bill. All right. Uh, interesting uh, findings uh, and advice, <laughs> especially uh, and just to touch on this, because you guys put out another report, too, that February uh, was a very uh, high energy month. We used a lot of power in uh, February. Yes. Yeah, we did set a record for the highest February consumption ever. Um, so you know, obviously it was a very cold cold month, you know, record-breaking cold temperatures across the province. So we did see a, a huge spike in electricity demand. So obviously great ways to save. We're not quite out of the, the winter yet. So I think we're expecting the next couple of weeks are going to be cold as well around Vancouver. So, you know, keeping an eye on that, that consumption, turning down the baseboard heaters. If you have a programmable thermostat, setting that to about 16 degrees when you're at, when you leave the home or when you're sleeping and turning it up to about 20 degrees around the, when you're sitting around the home. Um, and then you can adjust it to about 16 degrees when, when you're cooking as well, because obviously cooking uses that more like or heats up the home a bit, bit more. All right. Good advice indeed. Tanya, thank you so much. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your day. There is a rally taking place later today, and the title is The Landlord Who Stole Christmas. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is David Hendry. He is with the New Westminster Tenants Union. David, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, So what exactly is going to be happening? I know tenants uh, will be gathering uh, this afternoon around 1 p.m. What are you going to be doing? So we're going to be gathering outside of um, 732 Fifth Avenue in New Westminster. Um, these tenants have received eviction notices, and they actually received them two days after Christmas. 
so they have uh, four months to uh, leave their their homes. Um, and what we're doing is gathering outside of the building where they're going through arbitration. And uh, we want to put pressure on the landlord to accommodate these tenants during the renovations um, so that they can come back to their affordable homes. Uh, and so in New Westminster, though, and I think this is what uh, can be a bit confusing because New Westminster City Council is one of the first uh, that has gone ahead. Uh, they've passed a bylaw that would actually fine landlords who try to do this, this uh, rent eviction. So would the, land, would the tenants that are involved in this, would they not be covered by that? It's unclear at this moment. Um, these eviction notices were handed out in December and the uh, bylaw was passed in the beginning of February. So uh, it's still unclear. We've, um, we've sought clarification from uh, New Westminster um, City and uh, at, at this point it's unclear. But we are hoping that they step in um, and that, they, that uh, the landlord will be brought under, under these bylaws. If that's true, um, he would have to provide uh, accommodation at the same rate or face uh, fines of up to $1,000 per day. And you're talking about that one building, the 732 Fifth Avenue, and mm-hmm. I know there are other buildings uh, that you'll be going to today. How many people are we talking about? How many tenants? So there, this building is a 25-unit building, and you know the, the process of arbitration is extremely stressful. So uh, you know there's, there's a handful of people that are still disputing, um, but facing high-paid lawyers and and the possibility of uh, being thrown into the market where where rents are six or seven hundred dollars more, um, many people have have not been able to go through it because it's so stressful. So um, uh, there's a, a number that are that are still disputing, um, but there are hundreds and hundreds that that live in these buildings owned by this particular landlord. Uh, he owns six buildings in New Westminster and two in Vancouver. And what are the state of the buildings uh, to, to, to kind of uh, to look at the other side? Are they in need mm-hmm. of repair and in need of upgrading? So they're, they're older buildings, for sure. Um, the, the tenants didn't have many complaints in terms of the um, in terms of the conditions of the building, um, what is typically happening in these buildings is that um, they're they're going through renovations and they're being brought up to seven hundred dollars more per unit. So there's a building around the corner that um, uh, where people were paying about eight or nine hundred dollars, and now it's close to seventeen hundred dollars for a one bedroom. So um, uh, the the building does need to be uh, renovated at some point. The tenants were happy with, with where it is right now. But um, what we're really looking for is renovations without displacement. And it's the displacement part that, um, that people are, are protesting against. And because the way it is now, then, with that type of increase, is it that if a tenant is displaced while the renovation is done, do the tenants get first right of refusal at that higher rate to come back? They would get, uh, it's, it's possible to have first right of refusal, but it would be at the market rate. So right. they would have to come back at that $1,700. In, uh, in Ontario, um, the laws are much clearer, and people are actually able to come back at the same rate. So their, their tenancies are not actually broken. And that's what we're arguing for in this case.
Uh, would you agree, though, that maybe there is some room and, and that is a huge jump? And I get that if you're paying eight or nine hundred a month to go up to 17 is a huge jump. It's certainly much higher uh, than the cost of inflation or the cost of what a landlord, uh, if it was the annual increase, would be allowed to charge. Uh, but if a landlord is putting money into a place and is in, improving it and making it better, is there room there for some type of increase? Yeah, and they uh, well in Ontario they're they're able to have inflationary increases um, just as we are here, and and even you know if if there were um, some options on the table um, by this landlord that might be something that the that the tenants would could possibly agree to, but that has not been put on the table. Um, what the landlord seems to want here is to have market rates. Have any of the tenants or anybody from your group, have you been able to talk to the landlord? Yeah, so we were going through arbitration and um, our legal advocate has, is talking through to the landlord through his lawyer. Yes. Okay. And you, but at this point, haven't heard, uh, it seems like that, that that's what the landlord wants to do and that's what's, that's what's happening? That's what they're arguing for. Yeah, they're arguing that um, essentially that... Uh, um, that the renovations are necessary and that vacancy is necessary for them uh, to be undertaken and also that they, that they cannot return afterwards. So, um, and, and, you know, these are, these are folks facing um, a very stressful situation and also going up against uh, quite a, a wealthy landlord and a, and a high paid lawyer. So it's, it's very uh, difficult um, it's a difficult process to go through for them, for sure. Yeah. And and when they were given the notices uh, on December 27th, how long were they given to, to until they had to be out? So they were uh, they were given a one month period to dispute, uh, and it's four months overall before they would have to leave. So they would have to leave um, if they don't win their dispute. It would be April 27th. All right, and at this point, like you said, it's at arbitration. That's correct. Yeah. So they're going to arbitration on March 12th. And so, yeah, this this protest and and walking tour today is really about drawing attention to the issue. But it's also about um, trying to put some pressure on the landlord here to do the right thing and and to try to accommodate these tenants, uh, the the few that are left over um, and try to preserve that affordable housing that everybody in in the lower mainland is looking for. Uh, because we've seen this play out in other uh, areas, uh, be it Burnaby. Uh, certainly, we've been talking about renovations, mm-hmm. Vancouver. Um, what, what does that? Uh, I suppose what uh, what you've seen in other places uh, does that does that give you hope as far as the arbitration and the fight here, or not so much? Uh, you know, it's there. There's many different things to argue for here in terms of in terms of actually winning the case. But I think the overall picture um, is that. The residential tenancy branch really needs to make some some changes in in the laws, or the province really needs to make some changes in the laws. You know, currently it's seen to be an equal um, an equal balance of power essentially between landlords and tenants. And from fighting um, rent evictions for the last year or so, I can tell you that's definitely not the case. Um, so there needs to be some changes at at the residential tenancy branch. Um, so and 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 these renovations need to stop. It's uh, it's really kind of gobbling up all of the affordable, the, the low income, below market affordable housing, and we can't uh, 
we can't build um, affordable homes at that at that at the rate that we're losing them. Uh, no, and certainly a, a landlord, a private owner couldn't do that, which I guess brings in the whole no. question of uh, who is it that could be building uh, this right. type of rental, purpose rental housing and such. Because, And not to suggest uh, that, the, that yep. the landlord is is in a bad place here either, but I, I mean, I guess with the rising property taxes, with rising expenses and such as well, here's somebody who's also, this is, this is somebody who is in the business of rental. Sure, yeah. Um, and, you know, we do know that uh, overall, in terms of putting more affordable housing on the market, we need the funds from from uh, the federal government. You know, historically, that is where uh, much of our affordable housing has come from. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, landlords are, are we've, we've heard from many landlords who have said, that this isn't necessary, you know, that it's not necessary to throw people out of their homes, especially in the middle of a, of a housing crisis. So, um, you know, renovations can be done. Larger renovations can be done. People can be accommodated and, and landlords can still make money. It's a question of how much money and how much money do they need? All right. Well, uh, the uh, rally and uh, walkabout will be happening uh, this afternoon, one o'clock in New Westminster. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, David, and and bringing us up to date on this this morning. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much. Well, we have been talking a lot about renting on the program this morning. We started off uh, with the Liberal leader uh, pulling back on some of his comments, uh, referring to renting as a wacky time. He clarified he was talking about when he was uh, early on in his days, uh, well, in his 20s, uh, early on, how he moved uh, many, many times. And uh, it was fun. It was not fun. It was a bit of a rite of passage. Didn't sit well with people who are longtime renters. And there are many in BC. And we've also talked about uh, rent evictions and uh, some of the challenges that are out there for renters, uh, particularly in areas where people are renting lower priced uh, rental accommodation, talking about the old kind of three-story walk-ups. That too has become a bit of an issue when we look at the property taxes on those buildings and how much they are going up. So we are joined now by the CEO of Landlord BC and David Hutniak joins me on the line. David, great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, What do you think, what is the biggest issue right now facing landlords in British Columbia? Well, I mean, there's many issues, but uh, I guess the one that's most uh, re- recently very concerning and certainly has uh, gotten some media attention, and thank you for, you for yourself for covering this, is the fact that, you know, the, the property taxes and, and the, the assessments that were done of those old, old buildings that you just referenced <clears throat> basically were just shocking in terms of what, uh, what the end, <clears throat> end result was. Pardon me. And uh, you know what we're what we're seeing is that uh, you know the the values that BC assessment is determining and what uh, what that is translating to in terms of uh, property taxes is uh, you know really uh, uh, I think we we we're calling it a, a ticking time bomb and and that's not uh, an exact exaggeration the reality is that uh, you know BC assessment is basically looking at these properties and valuing them on the basis of uh, highest and best use. And uh, the reality is highest and best use, if we were allowed to do this, I guess, would be to tear them down and build condos, and nobody wants that. And then they also, you know, assume that every old building 
is uh, you know fully rented out at market rent, and that's just not the reality. So uh, these two factors uh, are really in, end up distorting uh, the the end result in terms of what taxes we're, we're paying, and then obviously we're restricted in terms of what we can pass on in terms of cost with annual increases, which were further cut back last September to just CPI. So it's it's expenses, uh, you know, escalating. Um, somewhat out of, out of control and, and revenues tightening. And that's just that means that many of these small businesses, because that's what most of these landlords are, are just not going to be able to, to survive. And, and the worst thing that could happen here is if they start selling all these old properties. And like I said, they end up uh, being condos. That would be awful. Uh, so what does a landlord do in that scenario? If we're talking about the three-story or four-story walk-up, you have tenants perhaps that have been there for 30 years, which isn't isn't outside the realm. There are many scenarios where that's the case. So they have been having their rent go up not more than what's allowed, uh, the percentage that's allowed. The property taxes are now up 100 or 200% because, as you mentioned, the taxes are now based on what could be in that space. What does a landlord do in that scenario? Well, this is the this is the dilemma. I mean, obviously, you need your, your first course of action is to to cut expenses where you can, uh, and that means you know maintenance and uh, further investment in in the building. That old boiler is going to you know continue to to be band-aided up so it operates, and you know you're not going to make the investment in 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 that building, and that what that does inevitably is shorten the life of that building. So which is not, you know, obviously the desired outcome here. So the economics basically dictate that the life expectancy of that building is, is shortened. And and what we know is, I mean, you you and I have spoken about this before, it's that older rental that is absolutely more affordable. We need to build more and, you know, get back into that cycle of, you know, building adequate supply. Yes, the new the new rental housing is is not necessarily affordable for a large swath of the rental population, but it is for a significant swath of the rental population. But over time, it becomes a more affordable rental. And like I said, we've missed, you know, three, four, almost four decades of, of that cycle. So it's, it's, you know, and then the ultimate, uh, I guess, uh, reality that these, these owners face is, do I get out of the business? And, uh, and you know that's that's where many of them are at uh, today. And uh, like, again, like I said, if if they if they sell, uh, you know the the new owners are are very likely going to look at other other uses, and uh, that uh, that would be an unfortunate outcome. Uh, what's your response to uh, the city of New Westminster? So a couple of things happening there. Uh, one of them, there's going to be a rally today with some of the tenants uh, of some of the buildings that claim that they're being renovicted or that they, they were talking about those older walk-ups uh, where they're saying they're paying about eight, 900 a month, uh, being told that if they, they do get first right of refusal, but coming back after the work, it'll be closer to, to it'll be five to $700 more. Uh, we have that happening in New Westminster. New Westminster is also the first city that's brought in uh, under the provincial legislation for rental-only zones. Um, maybe first, with, with, the, with the case of, of renovations and, and the tenants who are upset about this, uh, w- what is your response to, to somebody that says, if we're being evicted and you're doing this work, we want to come back and pay what we paid before? Well, I mean, you know, this is actually a, a symptom of the problem that I just described to you. And it's obviously not something that 
we endorse. It's not how our our industry is uh, operates, in the sense that you know we're not uh, quote unquote rental victors. The uh, the goal here is to provide safe, secure, long term rental housing. But uh, the reality is that you know we are providing market housing. These are significant investments. Uh, there are significant cost drivers, many out of our control, like property taxes. And so there has to be a certain viability here. Otherwise, you know, why do it? Uh, you know, it is, uh, yes, there's been some un- unfortunate examples, I suppose, of, of new owners, you know, looking at how do I make this viable? And uh, plus these old buildings, you know, needing, you know, major, major, major work. Um, and and so this is, this is like I said, uh, an unfortunate uh, symptom of, of sort of a broader reality. I mean, you know, renters need to be concerned about what the cost drivers are because they are ultimately harmed by this. And that's, and no one wants to see that. You know, what we're talking about in terms of this, the property tax situation here, this is all verifiable. Like, we're not making these numbers up. You know, the government can go to BC Assessment and see what is happening here. Uh, you know, they have a good sense for what our costs are, you know, in terms of utilities, et cetera, et cetera. So, 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 you know, I guess, you know, part of my message here to, to the renter population is that, you know, it's easy to, we're an easy target. Landlords are an easy target. And, and obviously, you know, there are always examples of, of some unfortunate, uh, you know, situations there with perhaps less than responsible landlords. That happens. No one denies that. But, but the reality is that, that renters need to start digging deeper here and looking at what impact our government policies uh, frankly, from all levels of government impacting their homes, and it's it's significant, and and so this this has to be part of the conversation, and really that's that's what we're hoping to uh, to uh, engage in here. And just before I let you go, with the idea of the rental-only zone in New Westminster, that city being the first one to adopt it, um, aside from the fact that we've had those six buildings that were stratified uh, mm-hmm. wrapped into it, which is a whole other issue, uh, but having the rental-only zones, do you think that what will that do to the rental stock? Well, you know, we, we support rental-only uh, rental zoning. The, the issue here is what, what they've done is basically downzoned these existing properties and that is not acceptable. I mean, what we would love to see is, you know, single-family neighborhoods upzone them to or pre-zone them for rental. That would be a good thing. Uh, you know, the the false. Creek Flats, a great example of what the city of Vancouver does. There's, it's commercial, but they're allowing uh, residential rental, you know, ab- above this this commercial development. So there's a lot of ways that rental pre-zoning can be used without harming the owners, the existing owners of of the properties. And that's that's what New West has chosen chosen to do. You know, there's consequences for that. I, I think you're aware that there's some legal action being being taken, and so th- this 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 can be done. It can be done successfully, but it has to be done appropriately. And and uh, frankly, you know, with all due respect to the city of New West, they did not do it uh, appropriately. They did not even consult, frankly, with those owners. And so, so you know, this needs to be looked at much uh, much more carefully. I know, city of Port Moody just uh, their council just decided. You know, to, uh, to 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 not move forward with rental pre-zoning, uh, uh, which is, you know, I don't. I think there's still an opportunity for them to 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 look at other policies that they can implement. But it has this has to be done thoughtfully. The minister of housing, when she introduced this legislation, this this 
uh, allowed municipalities this this uh, ability. You know, it was not. Uh, she was very specific. She was not intending for this to be a down zoning exercise. No, very, very true. We will have to leave it there. We can ta- uh, talk about this again, I'm sure. Uh, we're out of time, though. David Hutniak, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Take care. If you were paying attention to the testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould, you, like many other people, were probably a little bit shocked at some of the things that she told the Justice Committee. We then heard uh, from the Prime Minister later that day... Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also said at another event at the Canadian Space Agency at an event the next day on Thursday uh, that Canadians can put their trust into the investigation that will be done by the Ethics Commissioner. Now, we are going to bring in Arthur Schaefer, who is the founding director of the Centre for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. Arthur Schaefer, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Uh, Do you think Canadians can uh, put their faith in the fact that an investigation is now being done by the Ethics Commissioner? Uh, Well, kind of depends, Jill. Uh, Our previous Ethics Commissioner specialized in in whitewashes, and I didn't think did a particularly good job. But, um, you know, if you ask, well, what are the allegations? What might have gone wrong in this case? Um, everyone except for uh, the conservative leader, Mr. Scheer, everyone including Judy Wilson-Raybould says, well, nothing illegal happened. So there were no crimes. And maybe we should just pause there for a moment because there isn't an hour goes by that there aren't criminal accusations against the Trump administration. And it's uh, the various people who work for the administration. So uh, it's kind of an interesting scandal. It's a huge scandal dominating the news, but there's no crime. So the question is whether there was inappropriate behavior. And going back to Ms. Wilson-Raybould, she says um, uh, she agrees that it was legitimate for her colleagues to try to persuade her. In other words, she's Minister of Justice, and where matters, it's perfectly legitimate for her cabinet colleagues and for the Prime Minister and for officials in his office to contact her and say, hey, Judy, something terrible has happened here or is about to happen, and we need you to exercise your discretion, and here are the reasons. It's perfectly... That's not interference with justice. That's not undermining the rule of law. That's the way our system works. On a thousand files, people, ministers contact each other and officials contact ministers to lobby them. So what's gone wrong? And this is a pause over that question. And I think the accusation is that there was inappropriate persuasion or that there was pressure. Okay. that seems to me something that might legitimately be investigated by an ethics commissioner. And Ms. Wilson-Raybould gives uh, two criteria for what she thinks uh, was inappropriate um, uh, persuasion or inappropriate interference with her. And one is, uh, she to- at, one, at one point in the autumn of 2018, she told her colleagues and she told various officials I've made up my mind, I don't want to listen to you anymore. And they continued, they persisted. And she says that's inappropriate uh, pressure on her. It doesn't seem to me that that's inappropriate. Uh, She had the discretion 
she'd made up her mind, but why is it, if it was okay to persuade her or to attempt to persuade her in the first place, I don't see why she gets to draw a line and say, okay, well, I'm, my mind is now closed. I'm no longer open to persuasion. And in fact, what they were trying to persuade her to do was to get a retired Supreme Court justice to reconsider the, the way that her discretion and the discretion of the director of public prosecutions what we're really talking about, of course, is SNC-Lavalin and the decision not to give them a remediation agreement. Uh, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, said, uh, I don't think they qualify given the way the legislation was written. And I think she's right. I don't think they do qualify. They weren't contrite. They didn't come forward on their own. They had to be caught out. Um, and they were repeat offenders. So the way the legislation was written didn't seem to apply to them. But nevertheless, public prosecutors take other things into account, including the public interest. And there were not just 3,000 jobs in Quebec, Jill, there were 9,000 jobs in Canada, 6,300 of them in the rest of Canada. So this was a pretty big deal. I don't see why, they, why it was illegitimate for, uh, for the Prime Minister's office or for the Minister of Finance to say to Judy Wilson-Raybould, we think you've not given proper weight to some to the public interest, and you've got the discretion to instruct the director of public prosecutions. We want you to do it. So so far, I don't see anything inappropriate. Where I think she was right is is in the kind of considerations they raised with her. So they talked about jobs, which is which is appropriate. It's it's not inappropriate interference to say, hey. If you don't act, uh, we're going to lose 9,300 jobs in Canada, good jobs, uh, highly educated, highly skilled, well-paying jobs. What they also said to her, the prime minister said to her, hey, (laughs) Judy, I'm the member from Papineau in Quebec, where 3,000 jobs are going to be lost. And we've got an election uh, going on in the province of Quebec. That's partisan political consideration. That isn't appropriate. She's not. She's supposed. She's supposed to take policy and public interest considerations into account, not partisan political ones. So there, I think they did step over the line, and I think the ethics commissioner might well give them a rap on the knuckles. It's okay for a politician to think, "Hey, I'm going to fight for these jobs uh, because if I don't, uh, there may be political repercussions," but. Uh, it's not okay to say it, and it's not okay to to appeal to her as a partisan politician. Right. Uh, what about the the optics? And several people have been bringing this up that in the case of the CFO of Huawei, who is still being detained, uh, who is under house arrest, uh, the prime minister was very clear that uh, politics would not get involved in a case uh, that involved the courts. But with Sensi Lavalin, he seems to take a very different take on it. You know, I think the <laughs> to put it really bluntly, Jill, I think the Prime Minister screwed up in both files. Uh, with Huawei, um, they knew that the Americans were going to appeal for her extradition. They knew several days in advance that she was planning to come. They knew that the Americans were going to appeal for her extradition. Our former ambassador to, to China quite rightly said, although he got sacked for it, uh, we should have given her advance warning, don't come. I mean, that would have been politically astute, uh, and he didn't do it. With, with 
the minister of justice and attorney general, what I think he should have done. Look, all of this was done in a shabby way. It was done behind closed doors. Uh, the arguments, the pressure, which I'm arguing was mostly, but not entirely legitimate pressure, uh, was all, why didn't he go public? Why didn't he give a press conference or give a speech in which he said, look, uh, they, the, uh, the company uh, behaved corruptly abroad. Uh, we don't think that the law, as it stands, uh, which would which might well put them out of business and cost Canada all these jobs or cause them to to change where they operate, move to Britain. Uh, we, we think discretion should be exercised in this way uh, because we think that these jobs are important and it's our job to use our discretion. It's the Minister of Justice's job. And then if she refused, instead of denying that he fired her, because she refused, he should have said, I'm going to transfer her to a different portfolio because the government policy is that the Minister of Justice should take into account the public interest, which includes protecting those jobs. We should be sending the executives to prison who, who behaved corruptly and who stole money from the Libyans and the Saudis and whichever cut, and Canadians too, because there was a big corruption case involving SNC-Lavalin in Montreal with the building of a hospital, the people responsible should go to prison, not, uh, it shouldn't be the shareholders and the employees who take a, take, uh, take the hit. If he'd done this in the open, if he transferred her openly, if he'd said honestly what he was doing, I think it would have been good politics. I think it would have been good ethics. All right. Uh, Arthur, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk a bit more about this today. I appreciate it. Nice chatting with you. Bye-bye.